The kingdom of God is justice and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Come, Lord, and open in us the gates of your kingdom. Amen. Good morning. We were so honored to have with us earlier Sally Yates speaking on the topic of faith in the city, justice in America. And we are grateful for her generosity in sharing her wisdom and insight as we grapple with what it means to be an imperfect people pursuing a more perfect union with one another and with God. The God of the Bible is indeed a God of justice. And this God is also a God of joy. So today I want to spend some time considering the relationship between the two, which we don't always readily associate necessarily. We often speak of the work of justice, the struggle for justice, the dream of justice for all. Yes, the long road to justice is laden with disappointments and setbacks, this we know. But what about the joy of justice? Sometimes we forget, but just look at our tradition and you'll find countless examples. Look to Mary, for one. After she says yes to the angel Gabriel, she sings God's song of justice for the world. My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? Because in this infant King Jesus, God has and will cast down the mighty from their thrones while lifting up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich empty away. Our poor and frightened teenage mother of God demonstrates that joy isn't meant to be an auxiliary add-on, a luxurious extra for those with the time or the privilege it goes beyond mere happiness and superficial comfort, and joy is not a guilty pleasure to distract us from our real Christian vocation. No, in the economy of God's kingdom, joy is justice's fuel, companion, and product. It is an indispensable course in the feast of God's liberation, and it is a fundamental element to our practice of faith. The dance of justice and joy mingled together has no better model in our city of Atlanta than the annual Pride Parade, whose 50th anniversary, though digital, we mark today. A euphoric celebration of love and color, acceptance and diversity, it is one of joy and justice marching through the streets a victory march for love even before the war is won. Year in and year out, laughing and singing for so many decades now, through the tears of AIDS and the years of discrimination, the denial of the right to marry, and the fight for equality in which this church, all saints, so courageously took part. Such public expressions of Civic play and jubilance are nothing less than deliberate and defiant acts of not only embracing joy, but choosing it. Choosing joy, joy in the face of hate, joy in the face of fear, joy 
in the midst of death and despair. Each small triumph fueling the joy, and each measure of joy feeding the fight. Of course, we know the struggle is not over. Still, some would seek to deter the LGBTQ children of God, threatening rights and livelihoods as they seek to diminish human dignity and undermine loving marriages. Not even to speak of confronting the ubiquitous gay agenda of Taco Tuesdays and Sunday brunches. On a serious note, inasmuch as none of us are free until all of us are free, we know that the struggle for God's kingdom of justice and peace persists daily as a reality for so many who contend with the crushing weight of poverty, racism, oppression, and prejudices, as we all are contending with partisan political animosity that threatens the fabric of our democracy and a global pandemic that has exposed and exacerbated all of the above. It's almost laughably naive. It is laughably naive. How can we possibly choose joy with any seriousness or credibility? Paul knew about joy, a theme throughout Philippians which reaches its powerful climax this morning. And Paul was anything but naive, well acquainted with struggle, persecution, and isolation, even from jail. He articulates a joy overflowing from connections forged with his beloved community in Philippi. He greets them saying, therefore, my siblings, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Like many of his other writings, this one is infused with Greco-Roman athletic imagery. The crown he speaks of is an allusion to the woven victory wreaths placed upon the heads of champions. Primarily, though, a symbol not of individual esteem, but of pride for the whole city from which the victor hailed. Thus, Paul is rejoicing and exhorting them to maintain their spirit of unity and togetherness in community, which is itself an incubator for collective joy. In athletic terms, he is reminding them that they are literally on the same team in the fight for God's kingdom, come on earth, in the fight for the city of God. In this divisive election season, Democrats and Republicans, progressives and conservatives alike, you and I, are called to remember that we are on the same team as we follow the one Lord, Jesus Christ. And as we follow him with discernment, determination, and humility towards our common destiny, I believe that in matters of ultimate consequence, we will find that we indeed share more in common than we have differences. So let's not get tripped up, my friends. Let's not let pettiness or misunderstanding steal our joy. There is too much at stake to major in the minors while the world is on fire. And it's too easy to get tripped up, bogged down, 
and turned around if we are not careful. Sure, we'll have our disputes. The church at Philippi did. We have few details about the women named at the beginning, Euodia and Syntyche, but we know that they were leaders, and we can ascertain that they were having a tiff. It must have been troubling, for Paul makes a point to address it, and he does so brilliantly. This is where I believe God has a word for us today. Paul writes, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Then, right in verse 7, and if we were in a Baptist church, I might have you take out your Bibles and put your finger right there. There in verse 7, Paul pivots. He says, yes. And I ask you to help these women, for they are my partners in the struggle for the gospel, my co-workers. The Greek renders it something like my co-competitors, my teammates. So don't get stuck in pettiness, stubbornness, or cynicism, and don't reduce these faithful women to a problem. Help them. Help them. And for God's sake, don't get stuck. Don't miss it. Read it again with two words. Two words. He shifts the focus from all that's wrong in their world to everything that's right. As he urges the community towards unity and joy restored. He does it with two words. Yes and. Watch out, Tina Fey. The Apostle Paul was ahead of his time. Yes, and actors will tell you is the first rule of improv. And it's a rule applicable to life. It's an attitude of openness over and against a yes, but, no, but, either, or world. Yes, and. In the world of acting, to say yes is to accept and establish reality. And to say and is to make a fearless contribution. It doesn't mean that you never say no. It doesn't necessarily mean you literally use the words yes and. It's a posture. A posture of non-judgment, vulnerability, humility, teamwork. It's a willingness to let go of our egos and outcomes and to share control of the story, the stage, and the spotlight. You can't control the narrative in improv. That's the hard part. And, especially during this season of pandemic, when we are all improvising all the time, making up school and church and family and work, as we go, I believe that yes and can actually transform our lives, opening ourselves to genuine hope and new possibilities. As we're faced with new and changing realities every day, every hour, yes and can steer us back to rejoicing in God and save us from getting stuck in ourselves. It can realign and reorient us to God's kingdom of justice and joy, transforming our anxieties, both founded and baseless, into fervent prayers to the God who is sovereign over all. It's not about gullibly accepting untruths 
or inhabiting a toxic cotton candy positivity. No, it's about recognizing the opportunity in every little passing moment and in each human encounter to let go of something I'm holding on to so that I might receive something new, so that I might know God's often surprising joy anew. Yes, and can also transform our communal life. You see, if the God of the Bible is a God of justice, the tricky thing is we will find very mixed messages about what that justice looks like. It turns out America is not the only place with competing visions of justice. Just in today's scriptures, our reading from Exodus presents God as a faithful and reasonable negotiator whom Moses convinces to change his mind about destroying the idolatrous nation Israel. Contrast this to the tyrant king in Matthew, hell-bent on filling the hall for his son's wedding banquet, when the A-list guests declined the invitation, he becomes so enraged as to burn down the town, save for a few lucky new chosen guests forced to feast amidst the flames of wrath. When one is caught without the proper wedding attire, he is bound hand and foot and thrown into the darkness. At best, most traditional interpretations of this text seek to explain away why the story isn't really as bad as it sounds. Maybe the robe is a symbol of our baptism or our righteousness through Christ. But it's a stretch. At worst, interpretations of this text have been used to perpetuate anti-Semitic notions of shaming the Jews for rejecting Christ, the church's bridegroom. If we're being honest, neither of these kinds of interpretations really account for depicting God, really God, as a stubborn, unruly, petty, violent, egotistical monarch. That's not who God is. And so rather, perhaps these interpretations reveal our propensity to project our human behaviors onto God, all the while defending this distorted image of God through grasping, interpretive gymnastics. As a preacher, I've done my fair share of trying to accommodate and reconcile the details of this story with my belief in a just and loving God. But my consideration of the text this time caused me to ask, what if instead of clinging to the narratives I've tried to force for so long, what if we took a yes and approach and made a pivot. And then I stumbled across theologian Debbie Thomas's daring question. What if the God figure in this parable is actually the one guest 
who refuses to accept the terms of the tyrannical king. The one guest who decides not to wear the robe of forced celebration and coerced hilarity. The one brave guest who decides he'd rather be bound hand and foot and cast into the outer darkness. The darkness of Gethsemane, Calvary, the cross and grave, then accept the authority of a violent, loveless sovereign. What if that's who God is in this story? What if? What if when Jesus says the kingdom of God can be compared to this parable, he means not likened to this parable, but contrasted with this parable as an allegory for all the unjust kingdoms of this world? Yes, and invites us all to examine the assumptions we bring to the table and the narratives we hold dear about God, our neighbors, and ourselves. Yes, and invites us to pivot for the sake of progress when needed and to unlearn the stories that harm us so we can co-create a new story, a new world, where true joy and justice overflow, where God alone gets the first and last word, where we are called simply to add our yes and to God's work in the world. So yes, these are dark, difficult, unprecedented times. And there is joy to be found. There is joy to be found. And so, my friends, to echo Paul, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things.